Hey, Friday Night Lights fans. It's Not Only Football, Friday Night Lights and Beyond is an episode-by-episode discussion of the hit TV series Friday Night Lights, hosted by yours truly, Scott Porter, who played Jason Street on the show, and my two wonderful co-hosts, me, Zach Guilford, a.k.a. Matt Saracen, and me, Mae Whitman, a.k.a. someone who wasn't on the show but really, really loves it a lot. We will also bring on some special guests, answer your questions, and tell you about what's going on in our lives today. So join us every Thursday starting November 10th on It's Not Only Football, Friday Night Lights and Beyond, wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Clear eyes, full hearts, can't lose! Yo, next round is about to start. You ready? Yeah, yeah, just shopping for a car in Carvana. For real? Yeah, Carvana makes it super convenient to shop whenever, wherever. For real? That's a ton of car options. Yep, and these are all within my price range. For really real? You can afford that? Yeah, with Carvana. And boom, just like that, I'm getting it delivered in a couple days. For really, really real? You just bought a car. For real, and you just lost my turn. Visit Carvana.com to shop for thousands of vehicles under $20,000. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Dr. Drew Podcast. We appreciate you being here so much. Check it all out uh, at drdrew.com and also drdrew.tv for streaming shows. I always forget to talk about uh, After Dark. I think the Corolla faithful would enjoy After Dark. Uh, it's a little different than uh, the, some of the other stuff I do. It's more sort of geared towards uh, uh, sort of an incarnation of Loveline with a comedic bent. As, as Loveline was back in the day. But I do it in Austin, and which reminds me that I need to have dinner with Ryan Holiday, who is my next guest. Uh, next time I go to Austin, the new book is Discipline is Destiny. The Power of Self-Control, the Stoic Virtues series. It's available now. Is it available now, Ryan? Yep. Available now. Tuesday. All right. Fair enough. RyanHoliday.net is the website. Twitter, at Ryan Holiday. I suggest you uh, follow him on Twitter. He's got a, a lot going on in addition to the Daily Stoic Podcast, Apple Podcast, Spotify, wherever you get your podcast. And if you uh, – I don't know where I signed up for your emails, but you can get Daily Stoic emails as well. Is that at the yeah, website? Yeah, dailystoic.com. Dailystoic.com, the website. So, dude, I got the book last night, and I started, oh, reading, no. I started reading it this morning, and I didn't know you were going to be my guest today. And I thought, oh, fantastic. I can't wait to dig into this book. As I told you, I was very excited about this book. And it was – it. Immediately you launch into the virtues, and and I, I thought, oh, this is going to be a great book. This is great, but I'm going to have to make you describe it because I have not yet read it. So, so talk about the the virtues and where this one fits into it. Well, so the the four virtues of stoicism are courage, uh, temperance or self discipline, justice and wisdom. So I did courage last year. This one's all about self discipline, and then I'm in the middle of writing about justice now. But to me, uh, self discipline is the virtue with which we enforce the other virtues on ourselves. Uh, it's uh, perhaps the rarest of, of all the virtues, right? Uh, courage is about sort of charging ahead and self-discipline is uh, knowing when to sort of pull back. Uh, I think uh, Epictetus, one of the Stoic philosophers, he said that sort of key to life was two words, persist and resist. And uh, I think self-discipline is sort of captured in this idea of some of the things you need to do a lot and some of the things you need to hold yourself back from doing. And uh, In in fact, it it overlaps with courage, right? Because one of Aristotle's big uh, sort of uh, concerns was that people would read courage as heedlessness. Yes. He he uses it as the example of temperance that – 
Uh, recklessness is one end of the spectrum. Cowardice is the other end of the spectrum. And you need the self-discipline, the, the, the moderation to know that courage actually sits there in, in the middle. It's the, it's the, you have to push ahead, you know, past the fear. But if you operate with no fear at all, no, no boundaries, no control over yourself, you know, your, your courage is actually dangerous. So temperance is sort of the prefrontal cortical functioning, right? It's the, the, it's one that's hard, that takes a long time to develop, that children don't have, that young men don't have, I didn't have when I was 19. And, uh, to, and some of that is uh, sort of the brain growing and some of it, you help it out by developing this capacity for, with the way the, the, way the um, at least the way the psychoanalysts talk about it is identifying a dominant impulse and choosing a subdominant impulse. <laughs> well, it, it's interesting because the virtues are so interrelated that they're almost inseparable, right? So yeah. like uh, wisdom is also sometimes rendered as prudence, mm. right? The ability to know what to do, not what, or what not to do. But then where does the rubber meet the road? I feel like the rubber meets the road in exactly what you said. You have the impulse uh, what you, you know, or you have the impulse and you have to know not to do it. Or conversely, you know what you should do. Like, I know I should not eat the donut. I know I should get up early. I know I should not procrastinate. I should tackle the project. But where do you, where do you have the willpower? Where have you cultivated the habits? You know, where have you built the muscle that allows you to actually do that thing? We'll talk about that. Because that's the, that's the thing. You called it a habit. Yeah, and 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 really, again, I because I, Aristotle sort of the quintessential virtue, you know, uh, philosopher. Sure. He always talked about them as habits. There was some you had to really develop these things. And Plato took it to a weird place. We had to listen to a certain kind of music, and you have to you know raise a certain kind of person, and all that stuff. But Aristotle at least said you got to work at these things. Got to be no, habits. And it, it, Aristotle actually makes virtue very accessible when he talks about it this way, right? Like. He says, if you want to be more generous, this and, and right now you see yourself as not a generous person, you don't need to go make a billion dollars and give 90% of it away. Like you don't need to totally remake yourself as a human being who miraculously does superhuman things. He says the way to be more generous is to start being generous, right? Like he, he says that it's a muscle, it's a habit, it's a thing that you do. He says, you know, virtue is not this end. It's a means. It's a it's it's a process. You become virtuous by doing virtuous acts, he says. And so self-discipline is similar, right? You don't you don't magically become David Goggins by waking up and saying, I'm going to be David Goggins, right? You wake up and you don't eat the Oreo, or you you get up when your alarm goes off, right? It's these little habits. Make your that, bed. Exactly. And I think by doing them. Do, starting small and doing them consistently, you become over a time a more disciplined person, right? This isn't this thing that's doled out at birth, just like muscles are not doled out at birth. Uh, they're, they're things that you build by spending time in the gym. I, I think the millennial generation needs to get a grip on this. Because I hear them often talking about particularly grand gestures, like they have to have the mm -hmm. best job or they have the best when, – when in fact you're absolutely right. It is really just the small gestures that actually make the virtue, make the habit. And the grand gestures are sort of narcissistic really. 
Yeah, it's a sort of symbolism over substance. Um, <clears throat> one of my favorite quotes comes from the founder of Stoicism. His name is Zeno. He says, well-being is realized by small steps, but it is no small thing. And so these little choices that we make uh, about what we eat or we don't eat, whether we do the work or not do the work, this is you know what makes us who we are. One of my favorite rules for writing is um, just a few crappy pages a day. So again, we think discipline is like, oh, I have this exacting perfectionism. You know, I I, I compete, work at the highest level. No, it, you show up and you do the work. And if you show up and do the work, uh, you have something that you can edit and refine and polish. But if you are either procrastinating or uh, paralyzed by your perfectionism, you are not doing the act, which can then, you know, move you forward. Robert Greene, did he say that? <laughs> uh, <laughs> no, uh, but but Robert was telling me uh, right now, he's in the middle of a, a chapter he's writing on his book, and I think he's been on it for like seven months, Oof. right? And so you just think about the discipline required to show up. So he's probably not on a couple crappy pages a day. He's probably <laughs> on a couple sentences a day. Um, but But, you know, at the end, someone's going to read that chapter. That chapter is going to take them two hours, maybe an hour. And they're not going to they're they're not going to be able to wrap their head around the fact that he there were weeks that he made almost no forward progress on that. But he showed up every day, put his ass in the chair, did the thing. And enough of those in a row got him from the beginning to the end of that, you know, discrete task. There is this is not specifically, I don't think, what your book is about in this case, but it is that phenomenon, phenomenology around insurmountable tasks. Another part of the big gesture sort of um, story, which is, you know, how do you eat an elephant one yes. one bite at a time? Uh, do Stoics have something to say about that? Well, you know, I have something to say about it because I just I just did the <laughs> I just did the launch of it and. I, I did a thing where I, I sold signed copies. So I said, like, if you know, if you pre-order the copy for me, I'll, I'll sign I, it. You showed me, you sent me a picture of. <laughs> well, that was, that that was, that was, I think the picture I showed you, there were 3,000 books. I Oof. signed 10, I signed 10,000 copies. Crazy. Right. Um, and I'm not done. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm actually, I actually sold more copies than the publisher had. So I'm waiting on more copies. But so I did 10,000 copies. And so people are like, how did you do it? And like one copy at a time, like I, they put one copy at a time in front of me and I signed it. And like, obviously there was some logistical thinking, like I, I flew to the warehouse and I signed 6,000 of them in a couple days, you know, I, 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 and then at other parts I broke it up. But like the way you do any difficult thing, the way you make a billion dollars is, is it's not actually all at once. It never is. It's in these chunks. There, there might be some punctuated with, with moments where you had a big breakthrough or you're really in the zone, but you really do the way you run a marathon is putting one foot in front of the other for 26 miles. Like there's not a magical way to, to do that. There's, there's a, uh, an exchange between, uh, Tesla and Edison. And I know most people today come down on Tesla's side, probably because they see him as this kind of symbolic genius. Yeah. Uh, but, but, uh, but Tesla said, you know, if you asked Edison to find a needle in a haystack, he would lay the haystack down and go through it piece of straw by piece of straw until he found the needle. Um, I think we want there to be some invention that does it for us. Mm -hmm. We don't want to 
go through it piece of straw by piece of straw. Mm-hmm. Yes. Well, and again, the thing I've noticed that people are having struggling with the most is the getting started part. Yes. Th- th- I've just noticed that that's kind of a new thing. I, I, I think that I don't know what it is about the present moment that that's so difficult for folks. Sometimes I think it's weed. Like people are smoking too much pot, too much weed, and, and, and that does interfere with the ability to initiate actions. It, people don't understand how 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 subtle but powerful that mechanism is. The the, the go from an idea to action. It's a, it's a bi- neurobiological process, and I've noticed that well, certainly all my weed patients uh, had that problem. And now I'm not saying that I don't. And at what point does it start to really have that effect? I have no idea. You know, you have to be dabbing three times a day for it to happen, or can you smoke once a week and it still happens? We don't know because no one studied that. But I, I've I've wondered if that had something to do with it. Well, I mean, with any creative project, there's this sort of tension of like. You can't start before you're ready, mm-hmm. but if you're only willing to start when you're a hundred percent ready you'll and feel start. great, you'll, you'll never, never start. start. Yeah. And so it's like, how do you, how do you, you, you can't just wing it. And at the same time, you can never be fully prepared. And there is this moment where, you know, to, to use the Roman expression, you have to cross the Rubicon and, and you have, you know, you have to just do it. And uh, I, it's funny. I actually, when I was working on discipline, cause this is, uh, I, I've done uh, basically a book a year for the last several years. So I, as I started the process in, in June to like sit down and, and like go through the book to like officially begin, I'd obviously been researching it for some time. Um, I started going through the note cards and I kind of was like, I'm not sure that the book is here. You know, like I, I was, I, I'm not sure. I'm Tell, ready. tell them I'm what not- your process is with the note cards. So I do all my all my research on note cards. Here's some on the book I'm working on now. I, I I I gather all my materials on note cards, and then I sort of try to outline or arrange the book based on these sort of building blocks. And the the first step of like getting serious about the book is going through all the note cards. Where do the note cards come from? From the research, from the reading, and inter, you know conversations, and watching documentaries, and interviewing people and stuff. So I I had a huge stack of note cards, but like sort of looking at you know, thousands of note cards and, and going, oh yeah, there's definitely a book here that, that clarity was not there. And I, I sat down, I actually started on my birthday on June 16th and this is maybe the 17th, 18th. I'd, I'd gone a chunk of the way through the cards and I was not feeling good. And I was on the verge of calling my agent and telling him, Hey, I'm probably going to need more time. Um, and I found a note card that I'd written to myself. And I said, look, when you, the note card said, when you sit down and go through these note cards, um, it will feel like there is not a book here, what? but there is. <laughs> How I did said, you just, know that? I don't know. It was a message from, I sent a message into the future, I guess. And, and, and it, it said, just, just follow the process and the book will reveal itself. Wow. And it did not magically reveal itself that day or the next day or for many days after. And, and in fact, there was no moment where it just was. But that that stat, you know, the cards, uh, stacks and stacks of cards became smaller stacks as they came together in patterns. And and with time, I started to get the sense that, oh, OK, yeah, that there there is a book here. And I, I tend to find that's how it goes. If you Mark Surrealist in Meditations talks about not being overwhelmed by the crush of it as a whole, right? Like if you if you think about the enormity of what's, you know, what, uh, you know, uh, b- rebuilding your life after a divorce or a bankruptcy or, you know, uh, a scandal or something, 
you know, you're never going to think it's possible. But if you just go, well, what do I have to do today? You stack enough of those on top of each other and it it takes care of itself. Yeah. Again, that that is sort of deep wisdom in that notion of just putting one foot in front of the other. You can get a lot done. And people, I don't know that they know that. I, I, that's really important. Is that is that? Do they get that out of this book, or is that just something you're telling? No, about? yeah, it's it's definitely what I talk about, and I think one of the one of the benefits of just getting started and doing hard things is exactly what you just said. Like you until like until you've done a thing, yeah. right? You don't yeah. know that you can do that thing, yes. right? Yes. So when you run a marathon, let's say even if your time was horrible, what you emerge from is a sense that physically you can do really hard things, yep. right? Yep. If you can, if you can sit three minutes in a cold plunge, you know, you get this, you get a kind of confidence. So then if you have to jump in a cold lake, you're like, well, I have a point of reference here, right? Like, you know what you're capable of. And so having done enough books where I had that feeling that it wasn't going to come together and then it did, I think that's what where that note came from. You know, yeah. I was just reminding myself of what I already knew. And so you you have to if you shy away from every challenge every time it's difficult every, every time you don't want to start, you never start and thus you never finish and then when you really do have to start something that matters, you don't have the point of reference that tells you, of course, you got this. Well, this is interesting. This sort of harkens back to the obstacle is the way, doesn't it? it in that that people don't really and it's it and I don't remember you I think you were talking about this in that book but it it sort of brings in the topic of judgment which is you have a certain amount of experience gives you judgment like you you yes. and, and judgment gives you faith if you can judge it to be a proper road to go down and I I feel like for some reason maybe this is going to ring true for you your stories about Grant were sort of in this sort of sure. zone right weren't they yeah, I mean, uh, I don't talk about Grant a ton in discipline, but if you think about you're this guy who you bounce out of the he's a hero of both of ours. But you bounce out of the army. You end up sort of rock bottom. You're selling firewood by the side of the road. Uh, you, you you claw your way out of that. Um, so now you're in this terrible battle in the midst of the Civil War. You do have this sense that. uh Hey, shit gets real bad before it gets better. Right, and right. I can handle it. Grant yeah. Grant had famously cultivated this practice, which I guess is similar to what we're talking about. If you want to talk about a discipline, he had this rule that when he would travel somewhere, and this is back in a, in the day when bridges would wash out or roads would get you know destroyed. He, he his rule was he never went back the way that he came. So like if he's going down this road, it's just a habit, like maybe a superstition. But if he's going down this road and then the bridge walks brush, washes out, he doesn't trace his way back and then try to go a different way. He he tries to find a different offshoot of that road. And so, again, it was this idea that he had cultivated this practice of always moving forward. Right. Right. And so even as he clashes against uh, Lee in the Battle of the Wilderness, you know, over and over again, all the critics and even his own army expects, OK, he he fights to a draw. He's obviously going to now withdraw and regroup and try to fight. And what Grant keeps doing is moving for he sort of moves uh uh what is it, southeast each time, sort of going a little bit further. And and the the South is sort of stunned by this. But to Grant, it makes perfect sense because he's cultivated this discipline of I don't turn around and go back the way that I came. I keep marching forward. And 
that's, I mean, life isn't always about moving forward. Sometimes you do need to beat a tactical retreat, but if you have cultivated this kind of strength and confidence that allows you to 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 not be easily deterred, mm. I think that's that's a really important skill. I'm going to indulge our Grant uh, love for Grant for a second. Is it is it not? Am I thinking correctly? His first great win and battle was Don Fort Donaldson, right? Yes. And, mm-hmm. and there was a lot of this that kind of stuff going on there too. He just kept kept going. He kept throwing stuff at it and just did not contemplate that he wouldn't get through, so to speak. Yeah, in it uh Donaldson and there's another another sort of small forty he kind of has down, these two down. later later the one yeah. downstream and he kills he these kind of yeah he's these two kind of lightning victories yeah. and then he's sent to take Vicksburg and yeah. Vicksburg basically nothing works, yeah. right? He yeah. tries to attack Vicksburg head on, he tries to go around, he he at one point he he tries to reroute the entire Mississippi River and it doesn't work. Uh <laughs> and and uh, he ends up. He, he sort of does this brilliant maneuver where he, he runs past the gunboat, uh, the gun batteries. He he cuts his supply lines. He crosses the river. He ends up. He takes Jackson. And then he heads back towards Vicksburg. But but he right. So, he the, ends so up, the goal was going going around, going to the to the supply line essentially, and going. And no one expected him to go to Jackson. He took it easily and then came into Vicksburg. Yeah. With Shopify, it is simple to sell to anyone from anywhere, whether your thing is vintage or you want to create an online store. It's all the sales channels are sorted so your business keeps growing. It's how every minute new sellers around the world make this their first sale with Shopify. You will be so fascinated to see how Shopify works. Do check it out. Shopify, if you don't have Shopify business, your dream business idea could be dying, and this is simply how to start it. Shopify has encouraged you from start to finish. You can put yourself and your ideas out there again, whether it's making an ebook or making Shopify just makes success more accessible to everyone. And you can sign up for a free trial at Shopify.com/drew, all lowercase. Go to Shopify s h o p i f y dot com/drew. To start selling online today, Shopify.com slash Drew. Why not? Why wouldn't you do that? I, it's it's so easy with the internet now with Shopify. It's sort of silly not to use the efficiency of the internet, the web, and Shopify. Once your store is live, Shopify makes getting paid simple by instantly accepting every type of payment. It is Shopify.com slash Drew. This episode of the Dr. Drew Podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp. Of course, life doesn't come with a user manual, and people are stressed out these days. Therapists are trained to help you figure out the cause of the challenging emotions that we are all facing these days. And with the efficiency of better health, there's absolutely no longer any excuse. Whether people were feeling stigmatized or afraid they'd run into somebody or some silliness, you work out, you go to the gym, why wouldn't you go to the therapist? And now with better help, it's so ridiculously easy. The threshold has been lowered so much that there are no longer any excuses. Everyone deserves to feel their best. And as the world's largest therapy service, BetterHelp has matched millions of people with professionally licensed and vetted therapists available 100% online. Again, I've referred family, friends, patients. I've been very impressed with the services. All the benefits of in-person therapy, plus, again, convenient, accessible, affordable, more affordable. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to match with a therapist. If things aren't clicking, you can easily switch to a new therapist anytime. Could not be simpler. 
As I said, no waiting room, no travel, no traffic, no searching for the right therapist. Get unstuck with BetterHelp and learn more and save 10% off your first month at BetterHelp.com slash Drew. That is Better, H-E-L-P, BetterHelp.com slash Drew. I've been telling you that the cost of an emergency medical flight isn't necessarily covered by your health insurance, and certainly there's co-pays and deductibles. Protect your family, protect your finances with an Air MedCare Network membership. As a member, if an emergency arises, the expense of an air medical transport is completely covered when flown by an AMCN provider. Membership costs as little as $85 a year and covers your entire household every day, even when you're away from home, of course. That is just pennies a day. We all know the unexpected can happen. An AMCN membership is protection no family should be without. And for a limited time, as a Dr. Drew podcast listener, you will get up to a $75 e-gift card when you join Simply visit airmedcarenetwork.com forward slash Drew and use that offer code Drew. But it's like this like nine month process or yeah. seven month process. Yeah. And he, he he lays, it's one of the first big sieges of the war. Uh, they end up surrendering on the 4th of July. It's a, it's a more impressive victory than Gettysburg, which happens like the next day. But what Grant, you're right, what Grant learns from that is like, I have more manpower. I have more time, right? I have more resources. And by the way, like I'm down in their territory. This is their problem, right? Uh, he, he realizes that if he doesn't quit, like he wins mm. basically every time. Hmm. And it, when he, when he goes, uh, when he goes east, he takes over from McClellan. He, he says, like, uh, they go, how long are you going to fight it out? You know, and he says, I intend to hold this line. Uh, and fight it out on this line, even if it takes all summer. And so you're, you're totally right. At the end of the day, what he really realizes is like not quitting is how he wins this war, which is how you win in life, right? That That's not to say, again, you can't ever walk away from stuff. But as long as you don't quit in the larger sense, you know, you're always in the game. Well, this goes back to the book, which is that if you're going to be like that, you really better be using those frontal lobes. You better be yes. be creative, thinking, realistic, in reality. What do the Stoics have to say about being in reality? That's the other thing I've noticed these days. I, I'm wondering if the discipline of destiny has anything to do with that because so many people I think are not – I don't know. We live in a day when reality begs no alternative. You know, it's sort of, it's sort of, uh, you know, post-structuralism tells us that everything is just sort of relative and it's nothing. And it's made. It's, I've noticed it's made people believe things that aren't true, get steeped in ideologies, lose track because they're not. They don't have their feet on the ground. They don't know where the ground is, where the sky is. The Stoics have much yeah. to say about that. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I suppose they do. I, I talk a, a little bit about this in Ego as the Enemy, too, because I think ego is at the root of some of what you're talking about. I'm afraid so. <laughs> we, 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 we want things to be true, and so we uh, so forcefully believe them that we are upset when, you know, reality begs to differ. But uh, and, and, and again, this probably brings in the virtue of wisdom, like reality is something that, you know, you have to learn. It's yeah. not just something, you know, that 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 you want. Um, but I guess w one place to think about this, I guess it ties into Grant, it's sort of this goes to the balance of it, which is like persevering at something that is obviously not working. Right. Because you want it to be true. Right. Is also, you know, not great. That's heedless. Um, That's heedless. Yeah. I mean, I was I was listening to some interview with like this uh, this struggling entrepreneur, and she was like, you know, she was really she didn't want to quit on her business, 
which had made like a thousand dollars a year for the last like seven years, you know, and it, so it was very clearly important to her to identify as an entrepreneur that she was like, you know, I've worked so hard on my business, but and it's like, it's not a business. If you're right. making a thousand dollars a year, it's not a business, it's a hobby. right? It's a hobby. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, you, you need to quit. You don't have to quit being an entrepreneur, but you probably have to quit this line of attack, right? Yes. You have to adjust. And, and I think that is the, Annie Duke has a great new book out called quit, um, where she's talking about like in pokers, you know, some hands you have to fold and sometimes you, you've lost so much or you're so outmatched at a table, you have to get up and leave. But, but, you know, it, life is a big game, she's basically saying. And so, you know, I think the ability to sort of tactically retreat uh, or to, to uh, you know, uh, have a disciplined withdrawal is a big part of it, right? And one of the stories yeah. they tell in the book is like, obviously, the invasion of Normandy is one of the most impressive logistical accomplishments in human history. But the uh, evacuation at Dunkirk is more impressive. And by the way, you wouldn't have D-Day had they not been able to throw in the towel and get as many people home from France as possible then. So, you know, just because you're committed to something, just because you really believe in it, doesn't mean it's going to work. Doesn't mean you should keep throwing good money after bad. And you, you sometimes have to dis, the, have to have the discipline to call time of death. You know? I, I, uh, yeah, I guess it's it's actually the one of the more dangerous things. Because you really can hurt others, hurt yourself if you, again, don't accept what's actually happening and continue to – I mean it's an interesting balance, right? We're on one hand talking sure. about Grant who goes forward in seemingly impossible situations versus judging something to be an impossible situation. That's hard. Yeah, it's, it's not easy. And that's what that's what makes a ball game. Let's face it. Yeah, no, and I, I suspect most people probably quit things too early. Yeah, uh, but but plenty of people hang on to things for too long, and you've got to figure, you know, you've got to figure that out. Um, God, that's where this is where the stoicism rubber hits the road, right? Yeah. this is getting started, eating the elephant, knowing when to stop, knowing when to persevere, and that comes from experience. And so I. I, I guess we all have to go do all these things, and sometimes they succeed and sometimes they don't, so we can learn the judgment and the what would the what word would the Stoics use? Discernment. Were, discernment. Discernment to know you know know better. <laughs> to know better. I mean, maybe you can relate to this, but one of the things <laughs> I, I struggle with is like let's say let's say like I, I like working out, so I like I, I like to run every day or I like to do some form of strenuous exercise. But let's say I'm not feeling well, right? The tension between uh, or drawing the distinction between I'm not feeling super excited about working out and yeah. needing to push through that. Yeah. And I'm not feeling well. And actually the, the, the practice of self care here is saying, it's not a good idea. Yeah. You're coming down with something or, yeah. or um, like I was, this is actually something I was talking to Annie Duke about when I had her on the daily soap podcast is like, she was telling the story of this woman who, who broke her leg in the middle of a marathon. Like mm. she felt something go Oof. and then it was clear that she broke her leg, but she finished the marathon. Oh, now that, see, that seems impressive, it seems but foolish. it's actually insane. It seems heedless. Yeah, it seems foolish. Yeah. It's yeah. insane. You need, you actually need the, the part of her that said, I'm going to gut this out. I'm going to finish. 
Uh, anyway, that there's there's that's discipline. That's the voice of discipline. But you need a higher voice of discipline because it's not just raw physical discipline. It, you need temperament and, and and perspective. You need a higher voice that says, "Whoa, whoa, whoa! There's another marathon next year, and you might do so much damage to your leg here that you could never walk again." Or you know, I, uh, so so you need the discipline about your discipline. Right. Oh my God. This book's going to be complicated. <laughs> and I think I told you I went out into the Wadi Rum Desert in Jordan. Did I, did I tell you this? Mm-mm. Oh. So I can talk about it now, but just a little yeah. bit. I can't we'll, – we'll have another conversation when I can yeah. go into great detail. But okay. I was part of a reality show that's going to be on Fox in January, which is – I'm not sure they can ever do it again <laughs> because it was that yeah. intense. And uh, I went out into the Wadi Rum Desert and trained as a special ops recruit with a group of wow. 15 other people. Yeah. And uh, let's just say the shit goes down, but it's but it's challenges all this stuff because there's yeah. there's other layers that get involved. We'll I'll be able to talk to you in more detail yeah. about it at some point. And, and stoicism comes in. I, I brought Epictetus with me to the wow. desert. Yeah, and the Enchiridion, and um, did not have a chance to read it. I was too I was too off balance all the time by the training, but I brought it with thinking that I'm going to need this. But there are other couple of layers that come in that I don't know if the, what the Stoics would have much to say about it. But the you get sort of hypnotized by the authorities. You 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 buy in and you just are all in. You go all yeah. the way, and and their position is you better trust everything I'm telling you, or you could get hurt. Because yeah. trust me, I know what I'm doing. I know how to train you. Just listen to what I tell you. Do exactly what I tell you. And I have this thing where I want to be do a good job for people in authority. I have no problem with that. And then the group. You don't want to let the group down. You want to be a sure. part of the group. You want to perform well within the group. Do the Stoics ever talk about that stuff? I don't. I don't know that. It, I, I yeah. 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 Uh, that's a good. That's a. That is the tension, right? Because you're not just listening to the voice inside you, but you're right. also thinking, "Well, I don't want to be judged. I don't want to be seen." Well, as you're weak. you're sort of giving. You're sort of losing yourself in the whole thing. I'm thinking about one moment where I'm in a dunk tank with people jumping on top of me, and uh, and I remember thinking. I immediately went to helping other people out because I just yeah. didn't care about myself so much. I wasn't thinking about myself. It was very weird. It's very intense. Have you uh, have you read Candace Millard's uh, The River of Doubt? Yes. Well, the the one with the Teddy Roosevelt's River of Doubt. Yeah, where yeah. he explores that river oh, in yeah. South America. Oh yeah. You know he he took uh, Epictetus with him on that trip, and uh, you can see uh, if you, if you just Google Theodore Roosevelt Epictetus, you can see the copy. That he took with them. Oh no, kidding! Um, and uh, it's it's at the Theodore Roosevelt Museum in New York City. Is the the the, the house that he grew up in on like Twenty First Street, Nineteenth oh, Street? I've never like been there. I can't believe it. Uh, I have to go there. It's crazy. Yeah. It's really cool. But you can see this copy of Epictetus that he had, and you know there he was. He sort of pushes himself well beyond his boundaries. He's he's got malaria. He's like losing his mind. He's, he's got drifting an infect, in and out infect, of infected limb. He's got essentially gangrene going on in the limb. His he tells his son to leave him behind. He's going to die. Yeah. It's fine. Yeah. And I thought that was one of his best moments by the way. Yeah. That very yeah. moment because it was realistic. It was real. Yeah. And of and, that, and so accepting reality on reality's terms. Again, I always feel like that's that's Epictetus, you know, just deal. Yeah. Yeah. There's, there's a story of Epictetus. So, uh, you know, Epictetus walks with a limp and he walks with a limp because his master, uh, he was a slave, torturing him, he was, he yeah, was a slave. He, yeah. torturing him one day. And, and Epictetus is like, look, if you keep doing that, it's going to break my leg. 
And uh, he keeps doing it. And Epictetus says, you're going to break my leg. Uh, and then, you know, snap. And Epictetus just looks at him and he says, uh, I told you that would happen. <laughs> oh, my God. But he also along the way said something like, it, 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 I forget. He had some wisdom poured into that moment. I forget yeah. what it was. Yeah. We said he said uh, lameness or a disability said is an impediment to the body, not to the mind. Yeah, yeah. That's and right. and so I think for the Stoics, there's this big struggle as Seneca talks about it a lot too. That like the body is kind of the lower self, and the mind is the higher self, and the body's going to be telling you like you have to quit. This isn't you. You have nothing left. You're going to die. Or conversely, like you need a hit of X, Y, or Z right now. Right, your body's sort of screaming at you so, uh, to do something, and your mind has to have this sort of. Your, your, the Stoics saw the mind is the command center, yeah, and that the command center has to override the orders from the field. Yes, and it's it's there's great uh, importance in that observation. There's also it's a problem because we we now two two things I've known. One is, you know, the Descartes' error was that we are an embedded brain. We're embedded in yeah. the body. We aren't really two systems. We're one system. And yeah. separating them is a little bit problematic, but not completely because so, yeah. you do have this system of, above that can control things. And the other thing I've learned more recently and I learned in the desert, aging is real. <laughs> aging, <laughs> aging is real and it has its own ideas about what needs to happen to you or what can, will happen to you and what can happen to you. And if you're – Brain is not adjusting to that, which mine was not. Uh, you can put yourself in some pretty fucked up situations. And uh, I came home with, interestingly, I can tell you this. I came home from the desert. I went to the desert going, I have diverticulitis. I have prostate cancer. My shoulders hurt. I went back, came back from the desert going, I was in denial about aging and, and pushing back on it, whining mm -hmm. about it. I get it. I'm older. I'm fine. I'm glad sure. with what I've got. I'm right where I need to be. I'm doing the best with what biologically I am. And that's cool. But it's weird wow. that all that was denial. I didn't know that at the time. And and it, I think it depends on what frame you're looking at it. it. You know, is the body in charge? Is the mind in charge? Like I just did this last time I was in L.A. I did this run where I ran. Uh, there's this ghost town in, uh, outside of L.A. near Death Valley that uh, I'd like to visit. And I ran from the bottom of the town or the bottom of the mountain to the top of the mountain. So it was eight miles, uh, 5,000 vertical feet of elevation climb. Uh, on this sort of dirt rocky path, and so and you start you started at thirty five hundred feet and you ended at eighty five hundred feet, and so that morning I'd flown in from Las Vegas. I'd had like a five a.m. flight. I had I had to give a talk. Uh, then I had a five hour drive. It was like crazy. It was just like Ridiculous. one of those days that yes. get, gets away from you. And yes. then I was doing this sort of physical feat, and it all all was well until about seven miles in, and then my you know, there was just some part of me that like could not continue. That was like, you have to stop. And I, I think in retrospect, I was clearly both dehydrated and dealing with the altitude sickness. Yes. And, and real. my, and, and, and I, I, you know, I end up gutting it out, but the last mile takes me like 25 minutes. Mm -hmm. And, you know, is it my mind that's telling me to stop or is it my body that's telling me to stop? You could look at it either way. It's, yeah. The, the body clearly has something left, yeah. right? And the, is the mind trying to save the body or, you know, does the mind know better than the body and the body is trying to quit, you know? So it, it the, it's, it's back to that the, judgment thing again. It's about judgment. And, and, and again, let me just tell you, 
I would have pushed through, and at my age, I could hurt myself because I don't yes. have judgment about being this age so much. I have judgment about being your age and running from Bodie to Mammoth or wherever the hell you were doing. What were you doing? Yeah, I was I was just trying to see if I could do this. What thing, was the ghost town? What was the ghost town? Uh, Cerro Gordo. Okay, it's uh, it's like three hours from LA. Yeah. Um, it looks down over the Owens Valley Reservoir, or what's left of it. But um, the the point is, there is a there is kind of a civil war inside each of us mm-hmm. between like the the part of us that has more and the part of us that wants to hold back. And sometimes you know you need to win that battle, and other times you need to to not win that battle. And yeah, it comes down to judgment. Uh, so I want to pull back from the book a little bit and, and yeah. talk about something because you mentioned civil war and I know you, we, you and I both have, you know, derived lots of wisdom from Frederick Douglass and, and yeah. Grant and, you know, these figures that navigated through this, this period. Are we in anything like that now, do you think? I, I don't, but I hear people that I admire who do and I'm like, hope I'm not missing something. I mean, certainly we are challenged at the present moment. Uh, what do you think? I don't know. It, it, I go back. I go back and forth. I, I, certainly, things are not good. Uh, certainly, the state of the union is not good, and the republic is not healthy. Um, is, is that a lack of our appreciation of founding principles, or, or you know, looking back on what the the crucibles that formed us, or understanding that history, or you know, what, where is that coming from? No, it, it's definitely a lack of of understanding of what those things are. I think yeah. we certainly live in a a time where people, uh, especially people in power, put their own personal interests, you know, a, a ahead of you know what what the country needs or or what the and, and the I would and I would argue that that people in power include mayors and city councils and state sure. legislators. I, I think it's happening. I think that's an endemic issue. Yes. Yeah. Yes, it's, we don't just have a yeah. a federal problem, and yeah. then every city is thriving. Yeah. No, it, I think as as a rule, people uh, have come to equate. It, it's almost as if politicians on both sides of the aisle think that politics is just another niche to be an influencer in. Yeah, you know what I mean. Yes, like like when when in fact. It is a it's a job like a surgeon or a firefighter, right? Like you have to know how to legislate, how to make compromises, how to how to solve problems. Like they used to call uh, it statesman. Yes, we, not we, to be sexist, statesperson, whatever you know. That, yeah. that's what was that's what that was. It was somebody that understood statecraft. Let's put it that way. Well, uh, Madison, Madison Cawthorn, one of those sort of crazy uh, politicians who thankfully lost a, a primary, but he, so he only served, I think, one term. But he, he was saying, uh, he gave an interview, he was, like, he was like, I spent my entire budget, you know, each congressman or woman gets like a budget to hire staff. And he said, um, I didn't hire any uh, legislative aides. I hired just comms people. Mm-hmm. Like he just hired a media team. Yeah. He didn't hire people... Like, you know, because to, to pass laws, you need uh, lobbyists, you need uh, lawyers, you need you need staff to, like, pass legislation. So he doesn't actually see his job as passing laws. He sees his job as going on Fox News, just as uh, another person might see their job as tweeting a lot. Yes. He sees his job as as getting attention for ideas wow. when, in fact, we have a, that's what the media's job is. Your job is to figure out how to get the people that think this and the people that think this to come together to create a majority view that enacts X policy. And so 
I think there's a general lack of focus on policy, isn't there? I mean, like policy is almost an afterthought in everyone's mind, and that's all that really matters. I've talked about this before, but like people are mad that like companies are becoming very woke, right? That like that these businesses are being engaged in politics, that they're that their employees are staging walkouts or wanting the, the CEO to talk about this or that. I think part of that reason is that right now, because of the labor market we have, particularly in sort of elite professions, talent has all the leverage, right? And so they they have they, and I include myself in this, I don't write my congressman because my congressman's not going to listen to me. But I can tell my boss, hey, if you don't do this, I'm going to quit. Or, right? like, or or you're a consumer or a, an important yes. consumer or, and you can say, I'm not going to buy your product. Same yes. thing. Yeah. So, so, so it's like we have all this energy that should be pressuring our elected yeah. and appointed officials to do stuff. Yep. And they're not doing it. I like that. And so then we're getting mad at other stuff. Ben Sass gave a great uh, speech, although he's not uh, – quite innocent in the political, the politicking of all this. But he was like, the Supreme Court has become politicized, uh, partly because it politicized itself, of course, uh, and and has made some dangerous rulings. But if the legislative branches of our government were working, people wouldn't see the Supreme Court, which is not supposed to be the driving, you know, arm of government. Yeah. They they we should be pressuring our senators and congressmen and women. No, your, your point is, is, is exactly. That's that's. I, so I'm, I'm actually inspired here. You say it because that's was sort of. I shake my head like, okay, we want a Roe versus Wade law. Let's pass the law to get the law yes. of the land going. It shouldn't be the court doing that. It should be your legislators doing that. And if you can't get the federal, get your state government by all means. And I understand it's. This is a nefarious process, but. Let's pass the damn laws, and nobody seems. You're the first person I've heard say that, and it's it's sort of been in my head. Like, why are we doing? Wasn't there about to be a same sex marriage law passed too, and and it didn't get through or something? It's like, what? Pass know. the damn laws. I, pass the I, laws. I mean, Let the laws catch up with the culture, for Christ's sake. Why aren't I mean, they? I, I definitely do think that the role of the Supreme Court is to is to protect certain bedrock. You know, human rights issues, which is you should be allowed to marry who you want. No woman should be forced to be pregnant against her will, et cetera. But uh, the the overall point of the job of the legislature, like especially what's you know so what? weird, you look at you look at gun control, you look yeah. at abortion. Yeah. There is an overwhelming public majority that favors certain common sense solutions of course, to these problems. Of course, so there is a legislative will to of do course. it. Of course, it's just log jammed in in Congress. Well, it's for the reasons you pointed out before we got to this thing, you know what? You and I should take a good look at the history of the Supreme Court, and because you, I don't know if your understanding of it is deep. Mine isn't. And it's done different things at different points of history, and there have been some heroes and some villains in it, and yeah. there have been some fucking idiots and just people that – you know what I mean? There have been just old men yeah. stuck in there and stuff back in the yeah, 19th century. And we, we should get take a good look at that because some of what, what you're saying is coming from a place – from a sort of current thinking on the Supreme Court. And I don't know if that's a reflection of what it's supposed to be even because I don't know enough about it. But anyway, let me leave that behind and go back to, go back to Stoics. But um, – we should, if you see any good books on the Supreme Court, let I me will. Know. I mean, yeah. So, pulling back from Stoicism and looking at it from afar for a minute, some, a couple of things I wanted to bring up with you. I mean, we're running out of time. Um, 
Rob Henderson. Do you know Rob Henderson? He's a social psychologist. You should follow him on Twitter. No, a, I will. Yeah, he's a guy I've interviewed a few times. He's a he's a guy that grew up in really difficult circumstances, trauma. He's actually got a book coming out about his life. Ended up joining the Marines and and then realizing he was smart and getting into Yale through a sort of a army program. And when he was there, he was shocked at how people in those schools think because he came from you know the sort of these this certain background. And uh, and just kept going with his training, and now he's at Cambridge or Oxford, and wow. becoming a you know highly skilled social psychologist. And, and he said something the other day. You, you'll you'll love this guy uh, for sure. He's somebody actually you should like interview because he okay. the source of some. I'm sure there's a lot of overlap here. But uh, two things he said to me, or maybe three. Uh, one was that from his perspective, the big appeal of Stoicism through history, because he heard me say that. Um, when I got to the psychiatric hospital in the 1980s, the only people I found there were the very rich and the very poor, which was mm. interesting. I didn't know that. I didn't know they were the sure. ones that shared similar psychiatric stuff, bipolar disorder, certain personality disorders, narcissism, substance abuse, very rich, very poor. Uh, he said stoicism also was something that was, through history, most appealing to the poor and the rich. Is that true? Well, if you think about the two most famous Stoics, who are they? It's Marcus Aurelius, and the emperor of and Rome, Epictetus. and Epictetus. Right, I thought so, that too. I thought maybe he's on to something. Yeah, yeah, no, I think that's right. I mean, if you think about Stoicism as a tool to manage abundance, right? This is where self-discipline comes in, uh, but also a tool to manage adversity. This is where courage comes in. It starts to, to make sense that uh, this idea that like, you don't control what's happened. You control how you respond to what happens. That's true whether, you know, you achieve your wildest dreams or you're living in your worst nightmare. Like you need you need these skills more than ever. So it becomes more relevant and important in these extreme stressful circumstances. Thus, I'm carrying Epictetus out into the desert. I yes. didn't, didn't. I didn't bring it to work this morning. I brought it into the desert. And you're not going to bring. You're not <laughs> going to bring Aristotle or Kant or yeah. you know to, Camus. To, to the, the, these are these are <laughs> these are interesting thinkers, but they're not helping you when you're in the well, shit. Isn't, isn't that interesting that that is the most common uh, criticism that Stoicism gets is that it's not a philosophical framework. It's that yes. that it's a way of living. And yes. yet, isn't that what philosophy is supposed to be? <laughs> yeah. Help us with our life? Yeah. You know, the Stoics had this line that they didn't like the pen and ink philosophers. Like they didn't like the people who just talked and wrote about it. They liked the people who had to apply it. And you know, you think of Marcus Aurelius having to apply it at one end of the spectrum and Epictetus at the other, Seneca being kind of in between both, you know, sort extreme of adversity and extreme oh, success. Oh, that's true. He's, right, right. He's in Nero's court. And, yeah. You know, he's, he's wealthy beyond his wildest imaginations, but he's also, you know, subject to a tyrant. Well, right? and wasn't he, he exiled twice? Didn't he come back from exile? Three, you could argue three times. Yeah. You know, he gets tuberculosis as yeah. a young man. He has Jesus. to spend time in the desert. Then he comes back, and then he's exiled to Corsica. And then, then when he he decides to leave Nero's service, Nero goes, "I'll put you under house arrest." You know, and so so he he basically multiple times in his life he spends you know you know stuck in a situation not of his own choosing. Mm, crazy. God, that life, you think, you think about it. Now, the other thing that, that uh, I think it was Rob said this to me, was that the popularity of 
This may or may not be true. Again, I'm just raising it as a question. Yeah. Popularity of Stoicism comes up during times of tur- turmoil, let's say. That it, it's really it's some of its most significant evolution occurs with the fall of Alexander the Great's empire. Well, that's the beginning of Stoicism. Zeno, Zeno is born right as Alexander the Great is dying. So, you know, but that's world, when it really comes on is right around then. Yeah, the, the world is in a state of flux then for sure. And then, you know, uh, Stoicism comes to Rome right around the time of the fall of the Republic. So Cato being the example of this. Marcus Aurelius, sort of the decline and fall of the Roman Empire. So is something happening to us right now that we should be aware of that makes Stoicism relevant I, and popular? I mean, so and Stoicism's next big resurgence comes, uh, you know, 1776. The, the founders are deeply steeped in in ancient Greek and Roman I, philosophy. I didn't, I didn't know that. I thought they were like Locke and uh, Rousseau no, fighting uh, it out. I mean, <clears throat> George Washington's personal hero is Cato, and that's who we I sort of— did not know that. There's that's a great book. I don't know if I have it. But it's called First Principles by um, Thomas Ricks huh. that I think you would love. Huh. Um, yeah, like, uh, you know, Washington's decision to walk away from power is him emulating Cincinnatus, the, right. the Roman I general. That. I knew that. Um, so so he was sort of play acting. And the most popular play, you could argue it's sort of the Hamilton of its day, ironically, is this play called Cato by Joseph Addison. And a bunch of the, the lines in the American Revolution, you know, give me liberty, give me death. I regret I have but one life. To, these are lines from that play. I did not uh, that, know that. That people then understood as, you know, the way that we might quote the Godfather or something. Wow. But now it feels like this original, you know, sort of. So interesting. I had no idea. And yeah. Is that in First Principles? Does that talk about that? Yes. Yes. So, yes. So, um, Oh shit! I lost my train of thought. But you, you were you were asking, are thing. we in the middle of something now? Yes. Um, I mean, look, we're we just came out of a plague. We're about to go into a recession. Uh, there's a more than zero percent chance of nuclear war <laughs> uh, or right. a world war. I, I would definitely say we're in the middle of some shit. <laughs> okay, good. It makes makes yeah. this more relevant by Ryan's <laughs> books. So, and and to be you know my my sons love your books. Oh my god. They've, oh, been, that's so they've nice. been very, the um, been very important for them, particularly the obstacles the way got them going. And then I think you have ego is the enemy, obstacles the way. What's the other one? Um, stillness is the key. Stillness is the key, and you know, then courage is calling. Courage. Oh, those are the so the ego is the enemy. What's the other one they're into? Because they're they're into those two earlier ones. But hang on a second. Back back to the early founders and some of their yeah their rhetoric. <laughs> there was something else I wanted to get to there. Oh, shoot. It's going to come to me when we're all done. Damn it. I'm going to text it to you later. All, all right. right. So so um, this is mostly the territory. Oh, I wanted to ask one last thing before we kind of wrap things up. Yeah. Uh, Annie Duke. Uh, you yes. mentioned her a couple times. I've been talking about the Jordan Harbinger Show for some time. Jordan is always focused on pulling useful insights out of his guests. And not just pop psychology or self-help. Look, he is an interesting guy. He's had a great life experience. He speaks multiple languages, been all over the world, been a captive is the part I keep bringing up. It's so extraordinary. Not once, but more than once. And it, it is worth checking out. Uh, just recently, as I told you, he had Dr. Romney Dravasola, my friend, talk about protecting yourself from the narcissists in your life. Also, what a girl boss wife ruin your boy boss life. <laughs> Topics like that. 
and even more recently, Yasmin Muhammad talking about how the West is actually how Islam, radical Islam is empowered. And most recently, uh, can you help your friend shake his psychotic break, uh, which is uh, something pertinent to the present moment? Episodes are loaded with wisdom. You can always use it, and you can change your mind, improve your mind. And, of course, I enjoy The Jordan Harbinger Show. I think you will, too. Search for The Jordan Harbinger Show. That's H-A-R-B as in boy, I-N as in Nancy, G-E-R, on podcast, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcast. Again, that is The Jordan Harbinger Show. I suggest you check it out. She is a great... Uh, decision maker, right? I guess yes. that is how I would describe her. And she based her decisions, the quality of her decisions, not on the outcome, but yes. on the probability of success, right? Yeah. Would that be a way to, way to characterize her, her thinking? I think that's right. And I that think she, she what? Go, go ahead. ahead. No, you. no, no, go ahead. Well, that I, I think of, she, I heard her analyze one time the uh, famous play in the Super Bowl where Wilson and the Seahawks tried yeah. a crazy pass play that statistically had a higher like a 70% probability of success it went very wrong and yeah. she defended that as the correct decision even though it goes down as one of the worst decisions in in history of of the Super Bowls and yet she says no no it's exactly the right decision you can't control outcome you can only control making good decisions well, there we're getting into the the key uh, virtue of wisdom, which I think would cover rationality, right? Not making the emotional decision, but but looking at the facts. And funny funny story. So the the Patriots had read the obstacles the way going into that Super Bowl. Wow! And then after they lost, she and I have a mutual friend who is at the front office of the Patriots. After the the Seahawks lost, uh, Mike Lombardi, who was uh, uh, worked in the front office gave John Snyder, who's the GM of the Seahawks, the obstacle is the day. And I went and I went and I talked uh, to some folks at the Seahawks in that uh, preseason of the next year. But I think the the point stands that the Stokes would say, what do you control? You control. I looked at the information. I made the best decision based on this information. I did my best that it worked out or didn't work out is out of my control. I have to think about that on this on this book, well, right? I wrote the best book possible. I did as much marketing as I could. Whether people love it or hate it, after I put it out, that's not up to me and I have to feel comfortable with the decisions that I made. But you don't stop le- you don't stop learning with the outcome. You you then yes. you reevaluate. This is what has sure. happened to COVID right now and I I'm sh- I'm shocked that we're not doing deep analysis of what we got right and what we got wrong. And you have to look at each decision and dispassionately analyze the probability that that was a good decision. Yes. And and if it was a 20% probability of a positive outcome with 70% probability of adverse event, bad decision. Now, maybe you didn't yeah. see it at the time, but let's learn from that and look at how we didn't see that or what went into making the decision that blinded us from looking more realistically at the probabilities. And people do – this is the point I want to make – Humans do a horrible job thinking probabilistically. We just you, – you have to get very accustomed to it and yes. it's not the way our brain is set up. Yeah, and we we hand – like we uh, – there's, there's – the problem is we – being criticized for it, we don't like. Being celebrated for it, we do like. But that doesn't change whether it was a good decision or not. Exactly. Gary – would you tell me or look up for me the previous interviews I've done with Rand Holiday? 
because we we didn't we've in the past have reviewed our history together, and I want to refer yeah. people to the previous interviews where we talk more about that because I didn't have time to get into all that today. I was so excited to talk to you. And, well, uh, I, I would I would note. Uh, that all this whole discussion of Stoicism would not be possible had you not introduced me to Epictetus I, I, like 15 I, years I, ago. I know. I, I think it's now like 22 years ago or something, but but uh, but that that's why I want people to go back and listen to our other interviews. And, and not only just because they'll get that history, but also y- you really do want to hear the conversations we've had about the other books. You want to read the other books. Uh, I think this is going to be one of your your strongest books. I, it just, oh, well, it's thank just, you. Yeah. It's it's and the and the framing around the virtues. I just I love that idea. The fact that virtue philosophy is back, I consider a very positive thing. I don't know if you know it's controversial, right? It's actually controversial sure. to well, it shouldn't be <laughs> helping us live a good and better life. It's controversial. Think about that. But but there well, virtue are, implies a right and wrong, and, uh, and I thus, guess that's it. You know, I guess uh, that's it. Good decisions, bad decisions, and there's a there's judgment in that. Yeah, there's judgment in that, and. And we cannot judge, as Adam always yes. says. We cannot judge. No, we need to judge, but we shouldn't judge with. Um, we shouldn't be. What's the word? I'm just. What's the word I'm looking for? Where we, you know, we don't take into account everybody else. We we are biased. We are highly, highly yeah. biased, and we need to look at those biases and learn to use our judgment and our stoic kind of virtues within the context of continual learning. The the scales fall from my eyes on a regular basis. I'm I'm in my sixties. And the scales of insight fall from my eyes all the time. I have a – I'll just say a quick story since we're doing stoic stuff. I have a, one of my most cherished patients is this woman that was actually the mother of a good friend of mine from high school. She's a, a, an African-American woman who's been a leader in my community for just decades and decades. And she gave me this book on – she goes – she started talking to me about Jim Crow in Pasadena where we, I grew up and where she knew me when I was in high school. And I was like – Oh no! Come on, not here. And she goes, "Yeah, oh, oh yeah, read this book." And I was like, "Pow!" I mean, it was a horrible period. I had no idea what was going on in my own town. What the fuck is the matter with me? But the point is, it takes what it takes. You got to keep learning. Oh yeah, Did okay. You there this we book? no cast. Yeah, the origin it's of our discontent. So good. And I'm writing these books down. The other one is that Rick's First Principles. Yeah, First Principles by Tom. And, and who wrote Cast? Uh, Isabel Wilkerson, who also wrote this book called The Warmth of Other Sons, which is about the Great Migration. So all the all the blacks fleeing Jim Crow yeah. who end up in places like Pasadena. No, I know they do because my patients used to tell me that. They would tell yeah. me they, they came from Mississippi, the fan of Mississippi, and they came to Pasadena at a time when there was two kinds of people in Pasadena, rich people and the people that work for the rich people. <laughs> and I was like, wow, yeah. interesting. Yeah. But yes, okay, so I'll look her up and uh, see, I, I make one recommendation to Ryan when he's 19 and I get all these recommendations the rest of my life. Gary, I'm when, paying it I'm paying it back. <laughs> when are the shows? At the very least, episode 322, 393, and 453. All right, check them all out. Ryan, always a pleasure. My friend, You're good luck best. with this. And I'll, I'll, I'm going to track you down in Austin. I'm there every month or so. I would love that. All right. All right, I'll talk Bye. to you soon. All right, everybody. See you Bye next bye. time. Bye. For calling times and topics, follow the show on Twitter at Dr. Drew Podcast. That's D-R-D-R-E-W Podcast. The music from today's episode can be found on the swinging sounds of the Dr. Drew Podcast, now available on iTunes. And while you're there, don't forget to rate the show. The Dr. Drew Podcast is a Corolla Digital production and is produced by Chris Loxamana and Gary Smith. For more information, go to drdrew.com. All conversation and information exchanged during the participation in the Dr. Drew Podcast is intended for educational and entertainment purposes. 
services only. Do not confuse this with treatment or medical advice or direction. Nothing on these podcasts supplement or supersede the relationship and direction of your medical caretakers. Although Dr. Drew is a licensed physician with specialty board certifications by the American Board of Internal Medicine and the American Board of Addiction Medicine, he is not functioning as a physician in this environment. The same applies to any professionals who may appear on the podcast or drdrew.com. You're about to hear a preview of The Jordan Harbinger Show with the go-to person to help negotiate a hostage situation in Syria when no other intelligence agency would help. When you have a hostage negotiation, especially in a war zone, the first thing you have to do is tell the parents to stop doing something that they want to do and that every schmuck under the sun is telling them to do, which is to seek public support, right? To get public statements, to do Facebook campaigns. What just happens with that is your price went up before you even started a negotiation. You do not want to drive up the perceived value of the hostage. Sometimes people are taken hostage just for the shock value of executing them. What you're going to do with the campaign that you're doing right now is going to get your child or your spouse killed. How is pissing off the people who hold that person's life in their hands helping you? By the time I get involved, it's usually too late. To learn all about the nuances of negotiating with criminals and human traffickers, check out episode 617 of The Jordan Harbinger Show.